0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley,
1: California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, church. Uh, Today's scripture reading is going to be from Luke chapter 11, starting at verse 37. You'll find it at the lower left-hand part of the page when you get there. Uh, You'll find that on page 870 in your pew Bibles. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But you give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe, mint, rue, and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished beneath, excuse me, between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation." "'Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were, in, who were entering.'" As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him with, to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another— He began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops.
0: We pray this in his name. Amen. So say you went out and you asked just, I guess an average or random person on the street, one of your friends, you asked him or her, What do you think Jesus really wants from you? What do you think Jesus really wants from you? Or or if you ask yourself that question, What do you think Jesus really wants from me? Um, I think a lot of people might say something like, Well, he wants me to be a good person. He wants me to be more moral, nicer, kinder. They might say he wants me to be more religiously active. Okay? You think that's close? Are any of you kind of going, yeah, isn't that sort of what he wants? Uh, Any of you thinking, yeah, I think I have friends who might say that? Well, we're continuing in our study of Luke. And uh, in our passage this morning, as you heard, Jesus was one heck of a lunch guest. Can you imagine having someone over for lunch and then bringing the rain on you like that? That was Jesus, that's what he said here. So he, he shocks his host. Here's what's so surprising. You know, I propose to you that if you ask the average person out there, if you ask your friend, hey, what does Jesus want from me? They might say, well, he wants me to be a good person and more religiously active. So here's the shocking thing. The people Jesus is eating with, the people he's confronting, the people he's saying to them, you're not forgiven, you're condemned, you're evil, you're wicked, those people are moral and religiously active. So the the thing people think Jesus wants for them, Jesus says, that will send you to hell. That's terrible. It's not what he wants. It's not what he's after. And so we're left kind of uh, amazed that Jesus is telling maybe uh, the most biblically uh, savvy, morally careful religious active generation that the world has ever seen he's telling them they're wrong and they're not forgiven so what are we supposed to do with that because um i love you and all and i love you all and i don't think you're a bunch of pharisees necessarily okay but look what jesus says down in chapter 12 verse 1 really important Chapter 12, verse one. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered around together, they were trampling on one another. He began to say to his disciples first, what does he say to his disciples? 12, one. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So Jesus doesn't just confront the Pharisees. He then says to his people who aren't Pharisees, Watch out for your inner Pharisee. Look at these four ideas. Pharisee, okay? Moral, religious, influential leaders of the time, deeply caring about purity and symbol and religious tradition, okay? Then he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What's leaven? You're like, I don't know. I don't cook bread, right? That comes them from the grocery store. Uh, leaven, I think the illustration with leaven is it's so small It's almost nothing, right? you throw it in this big lump of dough and this little small thing that's almost nothing, it seems like nothing. You throw it in there, you leave it in there and it completely changes the chemistry of the entire loaf. It changes the whole thing. And so he says to his disciples, you guys, and that's us, right, if you trust Jesus, hopefully that's you. He says to his people, y'all better watch out for this little invisible thing that seems like it's no big deal, but if it gets up in your dough, in your lump of the leaven of the Pharisees, and then what does he call it? Which is? Hypocrisy. What's hypocrisy? Uh, well, Really, the word just comes from actor. So you're, you're acting. Anybody see the, let's, let's pick something, the, the Jason Bourne movies? Anybody like a couple of Jason Bourne movies? Okay, don't, don't, don't be ashamed. Okay, I liked it, it was fun, okay. Did y'all know Matt Damon really can't kick rear like that in real life? Okay, he really can't do that. It's too bad, but he can't. He's acting. Now, when you're acting and that's your job, fine, no problem, we'll pay you big bucks for that. The problem is when you're acting and you're, pre- and you're pretending like it's real. And so th- th- this kind of religion, Jesus is saying, is it's got all sorts of religion on the outside. It's not actually connecting you to God, or changing your heart, or having you find forgiveness. It's not real. So here's what's so amazing about this passage. As as you see the connections here and what's going on, Jesus isn't just talking to these guys at lunch, he's talking to every form of religion ever that doesn't focus on him and what he's done. It's not real, it's an act. Not that people don't think it's real, not that it doesn't have real institutions, but it's not real in the sense that it doesn't connect you to the real God, and it doesn't get you real forgiveness, and it doesn't get you real life change that God wants to do in his people. And so for us, as we walk through this, what do we do as we walk through this lunch where Jesus just, right? I mean, in general, don't act like this when people have you over for lunch, just in general. But in this case, This is what needed to happen. And Jesus comes down really hard on these folks. Why? Why? Because they're so stubborn and they can't see and they won't listen and and they have to be awakened. And so he comes down real hard on them and we're going to look at what he says. But then he says to his disciples, watch out for a little of that mess in you. So our job, right, is to learn, okay, what what was he saying to those guys at lunch? What was he condemning them for? And then even though, hopefully, you're not that guy and I'm not that guy, as we learn what he was condemning them for, what should you look for in your heart? You got a little bit of that in you, right? Is there a, Lord, is there a little bit of that in me, this thing that those people have institutionalized so powerfully? Where is it in me, in my heart, in my mind? Watch out for it, because in us it's like a little leaven and you let that mess grow and it'll ruin the whole, ruin the whole lump of dough, Okay? So let's look. What we're gonna do is uh, just unpack the setting a little bit. Then we're gonna see five ways Jesus confronts them and look in our own heart. And then we'll see, instead of what um, we shouldn't be, we'll see where we should be. Um, Our safety, our salvation. So the setting, the confrontation, the salvation. Okay? so. I'm gonna to try to work you hard today. Are you up for that? Go ahead. Give me one or two people up for that. That's all I need. Okay, I got two. Or, that's good, good, good. Two or more are gathered, you know, something like that. Okay, let's, let's, really, let's really get into this text. Let's look at our hearts. Ask the Lord to speak to us. Okay, number one, the setting. The setting. Verse 37, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So verse 37 ties us into the previous story, doesn't it? And we realized we've been here for a couple weeks as far as our Sunday services. We're looking at Jesus did this incredible miracle to save this guy who was deaf and mute due to this oppression from a demon. And he delivers this guy from a demon. And everybody saw how amazing it was. And they all marveled. And it just reminded us nobody could deny that Jesus was doing incredible miracles. Nobody could deny the authority and the beauty of his teaching. They could not deny the evidence of who he was. And yet, even though they were astonished by him, do you remember what they said about him? Oh, he's doing this because he's demon-possessed. And we're all scratching our heads going, what? But we saw that when the human heart does not want to submit to Christ as Lord, and all the evidence is right there, the human heart will do something to slither out, uh, subvert the truth, wriggle away. And so this is what they're doing because if they just take the evidence as it is, they'll have to bow their knee to him. And they won't do it. Um, So there's this issue of evidence and them not receiving the evidence and we've seen Jesus talk to them about that. And then here's they confirm their own hypocrisy in verse 37 because the Pharisees and the crowds are saying, oh Jesus, you're demonic and then what do they do next? Did you see what he did in verse 37? A Pharisee asked him to, you're of the devil, wanna come over for lunch? (laughs) These guys won't eat with Gentiles because it will make them unclean. Do you think they would really and truly ask a demonic person to come over for lunch? No way. Do they know Jesus isn't demonic? Yes. Why do they say he's demonic? Because they don't want to submit to him as Lord. They don't want it. And so he goes over for lunch. I mean, I love that about Jesus. Would you go over to a luncheon with, with people you know who are publicly slandering you and are going to want your murder? that's a hard lunch to go to and Jesus goes and he and he speaks with them and and folks even though he's speaking so harshly with them he could have just written them off and been like enough why does he go and even speak to them again even his warning is mercy because it gives you a chance to go maybe you're right it gives you a chance to wake up and so he goes but he does something that blows them away. Do you, realize what, do you remember what it was? I mean, it blew them away. What is it that he did that they could not handle? He did not wash his hands. Now, some of you, you're mothers and nurses and you're like, that blows me away too. <laughs> We're not talking about hygiene in this story. We're not talking about hygiene. Let me give you a little background from Mark seven. Mark seven is gonna help us a lot this morning. Mark 7, we get into uh, what the Pharisees were kind of after and what kind of practices they did. So look at Mark chapter 7, verses 3 to 4. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the, what? Tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, It's all invented by the tradition of the elders, okay? It's not actually scriptural command. And they've got these symbolic washings, and it just gets at the heart of what they were about. They wanted so much for Israel to be done with idolatry. And so they said, well, we're going to be pure. We're going to be set apart, and that's going to earn us our vindication from God finally. And so they had these symbolic things that showed their purity, but there was like measurements for how much water you'd use and and what part of the hand it goes on and you'd wash, like you said, the couch and the and the cup. And it's to say, you know, if any Gentile or sinner touched this, that's not us. We're clean. If anybody dirty sat on my that's that's not us. We're clean. We're set apart. We're God's people. We care about purity and obedience. And and is this tradition that the elders built up, Jesus goes over for lunch? Does not wash. Did you see their response to that? What was it? He did not wash his hands. Pharisee was what? Astonished. I mean, just, okay. What is the nature of this word? Look with me at Luke 8.25. There's another place Luke uses this word astonished, the Greek word anyway. Luke 8.25. This takes you back to when the disciples are on the lake and there's a storm and they think they're all gonna die and Jesus wakes up from a nap and goes, stop it, and the storm stops. Luke 8, 25. And they were afraid and they, what's the next word? Marveled, guess what? Same Greek word as astonished. So this is what's funny. With the same shock and awe that the disciples go, he just calmed a storm with a word. The same shock and awe, over the storm the pharisees go he did not wash his hands you're catching on i mean it's just this has this this ritualistic symbolism has so dominated how they view religious practice and it's based on an assumption of self-righteousness and so that jesus isn't He's not always rude, okay? But when Jesus won't wash, he's making a very important statement to them, and he's saying your whole system for how you view getting right with God is wrong, and I reject it, and you need to reject it. That's the setting. Now we're gonna see the confrontation of the hypocrisy. So, First of all, look at verse 39. Verse 39. Do you see just the first three words? And what? The Lord. And the Lord. You know, sometimes Luke will um, just show us Jesus and make us wonder, is he the Lord? Or sometimes he'll give us a testimony from somebody else that Jesus is interacting with. And that person will say, you're the Lord. But here Luke, as the narrator, says, he's the Lord. He's the Lord. Why is that important right before Jesus brings the rain on his lunch party? Because it reminds you what kind of authority he has. Who is it, really the only human being in the world, that deserves to tell us how to know God and worship him? There's lots of competitors, right? There's the elders and the traditions, and there's every religion that you can think of in name, and there's pop culture counselors and heroes, and there's commercials, and there's uh, TV preachers, and there's all this competition. There's political parties. There's all this competition telling you this is what the good life means. This is what life is all about. This is how you should live. But there's only one actual and true, the Lord. Not only that, this is the Lord who at the end of this book is going to rise from the dead, okay? So here's, I just wanna give you a qualification so that you can know who to trust when it comes to God, life, meaning, purpose. Listen to the resurrected guy, all right? Listen to the resurrected guy. He knows and he has the right to say to these religious leaders, you're wrong because he is the Lord. He knows. He has all authority. So we want to listen to him. We want to hear what he says. Now we're going to look at five confrontations. Five confrontations. So let's think about our friends, the Pharisees, and how he confronts them. And then let's look for a little leaven of the Pharisees in our own hearts. Right? Here we go. Number one, verses 39 to 41. You Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but give alms as those things which are within, and behold, everything within you is clean. So what did Jesus just not do? He didn't wash his hands. So he says, you know, I'm at lunch, let's do a little illustration. Imagine you go over to somebody's house for dinner, and they bring out this amazing bowl, and on the outside, it is shiny, beautiful, glorious. I mean, you even, you even look at the bottom of it and it's just, whoosh, okay, so clean. Wow, you can feel it. You know, you ever feel when you get the right detergent, you feel that dish and it's like, it's clean, it's so clean. You know, Wow, this is amazing. And you look inside the bowl and it's like last week's crust of ketchup. You know, you know when you don't soak your dish and like you left the food on there for too long, and you need a jackhammer to get that stuff off, okay? You, we we hosted some people last night, right? What do we do when we're gonna host people? Well, we wanna get the things cleaner than usual, right? (laughs) Isn't that the way you do it? You want things a little cleaner than usual. When when, When the visitor comes over, cleaner than usual, okay? So if you imagine going over to someone's house and you see that bowl, wow, the outside, the bottom, so beautiful, you look inside the bowl and, ha, okay? Jesus says to the Pharisees, that's a wonderful illustration for you, for you. You've got all these religious traditions and performances and dress codes and speech codes and people to quote, and the inside of your cup is disgusting. It's got old food all tied up in it. You're unclean, you're unpure. And then he calls them fools, fools. Why does he say that? Well, here's why, because their reasoning for keeping the outside so clean is that God is holy. That's why I dress this way, that's why I memorize the words, and that's why I go to the meeting, God is holy. And so Jesus says, You incriminate yourself. You're you're like a moron. Why? Because if God wants your outside, guess what else he wants? Your inside. If you were going to clean the outside of the bowl for when company comes over, aren't you kind of missing the point? Clean the inside where the food's going to sit. Do you see his point? And so Jesus is condemning an outward religious show without Heart reality, And so they would follow these religious things like giving money, giving tithes. And he says in verse 41, it's kind of hard to translate, but I think he says something like, tithe your own heart. Inside, you're full of greed and wickedness, your attitudes towards others, your character, what you think about, what you long for. Your outside is so full of religious performance, but God doesn't have your heart. He doesn't have you, your core self. You, you're putting all this effort into this outside external. You don't put any effort into knowing him or pleasing him where it really matters on the inside. Going back to Mark 7 to help us understand, it's kind of the same idea, the same confrontation there in Mark chapter 7. Jesus is saying, It's not washing your hands that makes someone clean. Mark 7 20 to 23. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come, what, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from where? Within. They defile a person. What do these folks need? They need a new heart. They need a new heart. And is there outward religious external practice ever gonna come close to pro- providing that? No way. So what do you do with this, folks? Do, do any of you ever struggle with emphasizing outward religious performance and ignoring holiness in your heart? Think about it. Ask yourself, where, where do I do that? Where do I sometimes do that? Where might I do that? Look for it. Repent of it. Focus in on your, your attitudes towards others, towards God, your, your, your longing for him or not, your hunger for things of his word, for, for connection with him. Don't be satisfied with, I did a couple of religious duties. I can check them off, and that's all that matters. Jesus is saying, true religion, real religion, you want to give the Lord your heart, very core of who you are, Second confrontation, verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees, you tithe mint and ruin every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Now, it's kind of funny to think about the Pharisee with his tweezers, I guess. You know, he's got his spice cabinet, his herbs, and he's like, you know, one leaf, two leaf, three leaf. Okay, that's 10%, and you, you know, carry them to wherever. I don't know, you tithed tithed your herbs. I mean, this is really serious stuff, Any of you do that? No. (laughs) Really serious stuff. And then what are they neglecting as they're counting the the leaves of their herbs? Oh, nothing big, just the love of God and their neighbor. Everyone who's ever claimed Christianity ever kind of knows there's two main commands love God, love your neighbor. And yet, how often do we break those commands when we're having like theological disputes or political disputes or relational disputes or any other kind of dispute? You're like, oh, well, now in this case, I don't need to love God or my neighbor because this is what's really important. I have to tithe my, you know, I don't even know what these are, rue. I have an excuse to not love God or my neighbor because he's got to get 10% of my rue. I don't need to love my neighbor because they offended me. Do you see? Jesus confronts religious practice without practical love. Again, I think Mark 7 really helps us understand. Here's how how Jesus condemned the Pharisees for doing this. You're like, well, how are they not practically showing love? Here's Mark 7, verse 9. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, verse 11, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making the word of God, making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down. And many such things you do. Do you hear what what happened? What's one of the commands? Honor your father and mother, okay? And then you should also tithe your stuff for God's kingdom. Yes, both are true, yes. But then they would build this tradition where, oh, I've got to tithe, and now I don't have to take care of father and mother. That's the justice Jesus is talking about. So you've got this religious performance that gets you out from actually practically loving your neighbor next to you. Woe to you for this religious externalism that gives you like a biblical reason to not love your neighbor. Do you see what they're doing? In the name of God and his Bible, don't love your neighbor. That's what they're doing. It's horrid. Religious practice without practical love. Okay, now ask yourself, you got any of that in you? Has has some religious practice somehow negated your need or your desire to love your neighbor somehow, to offer the justice, concern, compassion that they need, or to love God with all your heart? Where does that happen? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, right? Beware, may we never be like this. So Jesus confronts outward show without heart reality. He confronts religious practice without practical love. You can't help but remember 1 Corinthians 13, right? If I speak like an angel, if I'm a prophet of whoever, if I'm all these great things, if I have faith to move a mountain, but I don't have love, what am I, folks, without love? Nothing. Nothing. Who is gonna give you the love that you need? Who is gonna enable you to live in love? Third confrontation. Verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves. People walk over them without knowing it. Best seat in the synagogues, you ever been to like an old Baptist church? Maybe a reformed churches do it, but they'll have a bunch of seats up on the stage. And so if you're like a visiting pastor, you have to sit up on the stage. I'm not saying every time somebody does that, that's bad. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. The couple times I've had to sit there, I hate it because it's like, you know, you can't pick your nose. <laughs> you can't, I shouldn't have said that. This dude is preaching and you're up here and like you can't, all eyes are on you. Does, would, would any of you like to have everyone staring at you while you're listening to my sermon? That's all I'm saying, no, okay? You, believe me, you don't want that. The thing is with the Pharisees, they loved it. They longed for that chair up on the stage. They wanted everybody to know when they walked in I am an elder or a deacon. They wanted every, the, the lights to come on. Behold, the holy, righteous leader. And so they had these special greetings so everybody could see, oh, look, at, look how religious they are. What is it that they loved? The praise of the crowd. They loved the praise of the crowd. And he says, woe to you for loving the praise of of the crowd, woe to you. Now bring it home, church, you ever do anything for the praise of the crowd? Come on, don't lie, I do. I care way too much sometimes about what somebody in some crowd might think. Now we each have different crowds we wanna please. Somebody's crowd over here that really is hard for them, you might not care, but you got your crowd. Somebody in the crowd, ooh, and it's, and it's hard, and you think, well, what would they think? And, and I, I, want, I want them to think well of me. Whoever it is, it could be your could be friends, coworkers, could be kids, could be parents, I don't know, could, could be your religious group. Somebody wanting to please the Father through Jesus Christ. Mm, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. You know, it's really practical. If, say, say you serve and you volunteer. If you do that for the praise of the crowd, you can keep going as long as everybody's like, you're amazing. Thank you so amazing. And you're like, okay, I can keep going. We think you're the best. Thank you. And then you get a couple of weeks, so they're not saying it anymore. Or you get somebody going, eh, you, you didn't do that very well. If you're doing it for the praise of the crowd, guess what's gonna happen to your serving now? It's either bitter or you quit. And then you realize, I guess I was serving for the praise of the crowd. Was I ever really serving? Because when we serve, who are we serving? we serving Jesus. And then we serve others out of love. Now, other side of the coin, should we encourage one another? Please, right? Please. That's a biblical command. We need one another's encouragement. But we should never long for one another's praise. Jesus confronts the love for human praise. And then he calls these guys unmarked graves. (laughs) Somebody in the room had to be like, oh, you know, during this whole lunch. (laughs) Wouldn't you kind of like to be there? Because he keeps dropping these things and you just be like, oh, (laughs) wow, unmarked graves. So So the Pharisees were so into purity, symbolic, ritualistic purity. And so it became this thing in Israel where you had to mark a grave. Because back in the law, it actually says in the law, you can't touch a corpse. You'd be ritually unclean. Right, it says that. So then you have to wash yourself and be clean so you can worship again. So you can't touch a corpse. They extended it to, oh, you can't touch a grave because a corpse is in the grave. And then, so man, if you accidentally touch a grave, what's up with you? Oh, you're unclean. Then you gotta go through this whole ceremony. And so when Jesus says, you guys are like unmarked graves. <laughs> oh, it's so just right in there, right in their face. He's saying not only... In the midst of all your fake purity, not only are you so unclean, you're making everyone around you unclean. Every time they listen to you and you influence them, you make them unclean. You are the opposite of what you claim to be. And the reason is that, well, we've seen three. They have religious practice without practical love. They have an outward show without heart reality. And they love human Praise. Don't live for human praise. Amen? Number four, Jesus confronts a lopsided standard. Here's another funny one. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. What did they expect Jesus to say here? My bad. My bad. No. (laughs) No. No, and he said, woe to you lawyers also. You want to stand in line? Here we go. Why? For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Huge standard, extra biblical standard of all these things people have to do and loops they have to jump through. Again, these are lawyers, which means expert in biblical law. These are the interpreters of the Bible at the time. And they have added so many things that are extra to scripture that Jesus calls it like a burden on the people. It's like just pounding them down, it's crushing them with this law that they can't carry and they themselves won't carry it and they won't lift a finger to move it. Oh, I'm the law teacher, I don't have to do it. And Jesus is so mad. Let me give you an example of how this worked for them. I wanna take you to Luke 21. It's gonna be a familiar passage for most of you. Luke 21, verse one. This is later in the book obviously, Jesus is getting close to being crucified, he's in the temple. Luke 21, verse 1, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Have you heard this story? Verse 2, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Now, how's that story usually used? The way I've heard it often is it's used like a tithing example. And so look at her, she's a great example because she gave so much, even though she didn't have anything. We should give like that. The rich were giving a lot, but they had a lot, so we're not impressed. Give like the widow. You guys, that's not what the story's about. It's not what the story's about. How do you like a religious system that says to the widow, we want it all? How do you like a system like that that says to this lady who has nothing, who is poor, who's downtrodden, who's lost, who's alone, give more. And then the rich people, they're putting in some in the box and guess who they're not giving to? They're not giving to her. So they're celebrating their public tithe. Look how much I'm giving in the midst of this woman, what, dying in starvation so that she could give to this unjust religious system and no one cares? It reminds you of the prosperity gospel today people on TV getting all their money from the poor, from the lonely. God will bless you if you give your seed money. And, it, you know, the prosperity gospel always works for those who preach it. Disgusting. You give these heavy burdens, you won't lift it. And then if you look at what Jesus says in Luke 21, so he's, he talks about this woman giving everything she has to live on, she's a widow, in verse four. Luke 21, verse five. Next verse, and while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come where there will be not be left here one stone upon another that won't be thrown down. As Jesus sees the temple get this widow with nothing, give everything she has, his next line is, I'm tearing it down. Woe to you. Wow. Jesus confronts a lopsided standard. Guys, as I look out on you, my dear brothers and sisters, your hearts are not like this. I know that. I've seen you serve and love people. I don't believe our Our church culture is like this, but watch out for the leaven. Watch out. Watch out for where we would want to give expectations or standards that would break the poor or the downtrodden or the outsider while we wouldn't engage or help. And maybe have something a little more subtle. Watch out for when your ethical standard is so high for somebody else and so low for yourself. Let me, help you show, let me help show you how to find it. Who are you bitter with right now? Who, who is it when you think about them but you're bitter with them for theirs? Your standard's lopsided. You've got the standard they need to keep to be loved and valued and accepted and you're not keeping that. And you're relying on God's grace, right? Me too. And so what does that other person deserve from us? God's grace. So watch out for the leaven, right? Watch out, just a little bit of a lopsided standard. Number five, our last confrontation, I'm just gonna put 47 to 53, 52 all in one point here. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you're witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs, tombs. 49, therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. What's he saying? Well, the lawyers and the Pharisees were so into purity and faithfulness that they would build monuments to the prophets of old. Okay, fair enough. You like Isaiah? You know, here buried Isaiah. Great. The irony is which Jesus is pointing out here, this is hitting right in the home of the moment, is that, so, so you guys, Pharisees and lawyers, he says, you know your forefathers were wrong to reject God's prophets. And they're like, yeah, so wrong. We would never do that. And he's like, <clears throat> me and John the Baptist. They hated John the Baptist, who was the prophet of which Isaiah foretold. And what are they already planning in their inner rooms with Jesus? We're down to like, I don't know, several months left before the crucifixion. They're already talking about, we got to kill this guy. And so they're building monuments to Isaiah saying, we'd never be like our forefathers who hated the prophets. And yet, as God sends them the ultimate prophet, the Lord Jesus, what do they want to do with him? Kill him. And you guys, let me be really controversial. This is a picture of every single religion other than gospel-preaching Christianity. They say we love a prophet, whoever it is. And what, how do they respond to the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus, the authority of the one who died and rose from the dead? How do they respond to him? They won't submit. Woe to you. Woe to you for religion without trust in Christ. That's what this is. Woe to you for religion without trust in Christ. Look at verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers. So amazing. For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So again, here they are. These are law experts, Bible experts. And so Jesus says, you don't want to actually know the truth of the scriptures. And moreover, you keep others from knowing the truth of the scriptures. And yet their job is what? Teacher of the scriptures. (laughs) Again, you do the opposite, the exact opposite of what you claim to be doing. How can he say that? It gets worse in Matthew 23. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 23, 13. Matthew 23, 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Same idea, right? You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter in to go. Verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a what? Child of hell as yourselves i don't think jesus is just using like sloppy language i don't think he's just cursing using the word hell i think he actually means literally child of hell as in going to hell for sins could he be stronger what is it that these so these folks are hiding salvation from others as they promote this self righteous moralistic, religious system that denies Jesus Christ. And that's every religion on earth other than Christianity. So you can understand that response, can't you? Verse 53, as he went away from there, (laughs) let's just say they were not happy. They begin to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say so they want to expose him, they want to ruin him. Crucifixion. So we've seen the setting. We've seen Jesus' con- confrontations. We've wanted to look for the leaven of the Pharisees in our own hearts. What's the antidote? What's the salvation? What is the, what is the safety the Maybe we could ask it like this. What is the key of knowledge? Kind of mysterious phrase, isn't it? You've taken the key of knowledge and you've hidden it from others. Well, what is the key of knowledge that they've taken? Well, context always helps. Let's just remember the big setting of the story. What have they been doing with Jesus? Jesus does a miracle. What do they, what do they say to the crowds? He's of the devil. Don't listen to him. Don't go to him. Don't trust him. Don't look to him. So just given that, what would you come up with? What is the key of knowledge? Or maybe you could say, who is the key of knowledge? Who who is the one that could actually change your heart? Who is the one that could actually free you from love of the crowd? Who is the one who could actually give you a genuine and sincere love for others? Who could do that? Of course you know, right? End of this gospel, Jesus is going to die. He's going to rise for sins. He's going to say, proclaim me to the world for forgiveness. And then later, uh, Luke's good friend, the apostle Paul, will write this letter in Colossians. I want to land there with you just for a few moments. Look at Colossians 2. What is the key of knowledge? Colossians 2, verse 2, Paul says, basically, he's praying for them. I pray that you would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And what does Jesus have in verse three? In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus is the key. You could continue in Colossians 2. We read it this morning already. Colossians two thirteen, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made, what? Alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cance- canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross nailing it to the cross. Isn't this the antidote to all those warnings? Isn't this it? Jesus says to these religious moral people, you're not forgiven, you're condemned. How do you find forgiveness? Give up on that self-righteous, I'm a good person on my own stuff. and Admit your sin before God, you're breaking his law, and come to Christ and say, forgive me. Let your life be good enough to save me. I look to your death to forgive me of my sins. Your resurrection, save me. And guess what you'll have in Christ? Forgiveness right there. But not only that, the New Testament tells us as you trust him, you're connected to him. You're united to him. There's this baptism thing where the old you dies and the new you comes to life. You have a new life with God and that's gonna change your heart. If you want more of this, read Colossians 2 today. Read Colossians 3 and you'll get into Colossians 3 and because of the, cr- of the cross in Colossians 3, Paul will say, uh, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above. See who you are in Christ, and then the rest of that chapter is going to be now you can love people. Now you can show compassion. Now you can forgive. Now you can tell the truth. You're changing now. You have everything the false teachers don't have and couldn't offer and couldn't do. You have it right there in Jesus Christ. He's the key. He is the key. He's our safety, He's our salvation. That was a big lunch. We can take with you. Beware of the leaven of these self-righteous ideas. Watch out, watch your mind, watch your heart, fight them off, and don't get distracted. Where do you wanna look? What's the key of knowledge? What do you wanna cling to? What do you wanna embrace? What do you wanna hold to? Jesus, who he is, what he's done for you, specifically in his cross and resurrection. You guys, that is what changes the heart. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.